Welcome to Current Yield, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jim Grant on behalf of the uh, entire Grant's Interest Rate Organization. We are assembled around a table today. To my left, Eric Whitehead, our uh, technician, engineer, and man at the controls. And uh, directly across is the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's. To my right, Fabiano Santine, who does so much of our good credit work. I do so much of the, uh, you know, the ordinary credit work. Fabiano's in charge of the good stuff. And joining us today is Andrew Park, who is um, connected with um, an organization that has more consonants than you can count. All right, here it is. Andrew is um, a senior editor at S&P LCD. S&P, we know what that stands for. LCD has always mystified me. Lowercase debt, I think, is what we'll go with. In any case, Andrew is... Andrew's been around. Andrew graduated from George Washington University in uh, the spring of 2008 and took a job at PIMCO, went west, and was immediately tossed into the fray of what became the great crisis of 2008. He went uh, to the short-term money desk where his seniors assured him nothing was going to happen. And then everything happened. Uh, Andrew was born, I guess, uh, Andrew, about 21 years before the financial crisis, which is like being born 18 years before a world war. It's not the best time you can... Ask your parents about that next time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but Andrew, welcome. And um, I would. I'm going to take the as, as the editor of Grants. I'm going to uh, seize the opportunity to ask you the very first question, and that is, um, you were there for 2008 and 9. Ten years have passed. In fact, another year, actually, 11. Can you give us a very short summary of the uh, of the similarities and the differences? How do things set up? What does it remind you of? And what's different? with the fact that before I started my first job in 2008, I'd actually been spending a number of summers actually at a number of different investment banks and also um, through my time in the Structured Products Group uh, interning at PIMCO the summer of both 2006 and 7. And so one of the things that I had seen was that the markets were fairly hot then, right? There was no question in mind that anything related to leverage finance or call it securitization at the time was going to do very well. And so if you were young and fairly out of college, you wanted to take a part of that. And so just getting involved with the whole issuance of CDOs back before 2008, you got to sense of, wow, this market is very hot right now. Now, Andrew, and, did, are you so, confessing that you were part of the problem? <laughs> uh, well, we'll say with a disclaimer, I was young uh, when I was involved. Yeah, so, yeah. But to say, All right, so, did I want to get in on the party? Okay. You could potentially say that. So is there a party today? We see a similar party. Is it as crazy of a party? Not seemingly as much, but it's certainly a, uh, a fun party for that matter. I mean, given what we've seen so far in the last couple of years in terms of how much issuance has come back and also how a lot of the terms are getting, uh, we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of uh, euphoria in these same markets right now. Are you? Which markets are actually the hottest right now? I mean, we've seen leveraged loans actually grow to be bigger than kind of the high-yield bond market, which is different than it was before. Which markets are hot right now, and how does that contrast with how the market looked like in uh, 07 and 08? Right. So right now, as you mentioned, leveraged loans, that market is now over $1.1 trillion. So that's a fair bit out there right now. On top of that, you have the biggest buyers of loans, CLOs, which has now grown to about globally about $750 billion now. So we're talking uh, levels that are nearly double what they were back uh, in 2007 and eight. So they are uh, up there right now, and there is a lot of demand for the paper. Just as uh, worldwide right now, we're seeing this 
big, massive chase for yield right now. And that bill, you know, up to, you know, 10 years after the crisis has not changed right now. And let's stop for a second and define some terms for listeners whose field of expertise might not be the this one. Um, leverage loan is one of these terms that is going to confuse people because it seems like a, an utter redundancy. I mean, every loan involves leverage, right? So it's a leverage loan. It's like, it's like botanical garden, right? Every garden is botanical. So what do we mean by a leverage loan? So when you're giving a loan out to a corporate borrower here, you're usually giving them one that is a little bit lower rated, so not investment grade. And I think that's where a lot of the alarm usually comes from, because by the very nature of the fact that you're lending to a non-investment grade corporate borrower, naturally is going to raise some eyebrows. So we could call it right? a junk so, loan in a way, couldn't we? Exactly, right? I mean, just how you call uh, on the bond side junk bonds, you have leveraged loans, which by themselves, you know, it sparks some concern by it, by how it sounds. Uh, CLO signifies uh, collateralized, collateralized loan, loan obligation. And what's that? And so they are the biggest buyers of the loans that are then reissued into new forms of debt. So the reason why that name sounds very familiar to a lot of people is because they rhyme with a very similar sounding vehicle from 2008 called CDOs, right? Collateralized debt obligations. And so this is something that's going to come up a lot uh, in discussion today because people say, okay, we are issuing many, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in these risky assets, which are getting riskier right now. And the biggest buyers of them are these three-letter vehicles out there that are then being sold to foreign investors. So ah. haven't we seen this picture before? Right? Uh, Doesn't this sound very similar? Uh, Andrew, I think one thing you're pointing to is back in the crisis, CLOs actually did pretty well. And CDOs, their brethren who sound almost exactly the same, did not. But since the financial crisis, because CLOs had a good track record, they've grown to be an enormous asset class. And we've also seen leveraged loans grow to be uh, and uh, you said double in size. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about the the health and safety of those markets? Like what's happened in terms of creditor protection, in terms of leverage, in terms of borrowers? Like have people seeing that it worked last time leveraged to the point that it might not work next time? So that's, I think, one key distinction that needs to be made here. Because if we think about what a lot of the problems were bubbling in pre-2008, a lot of that was focused on the consumer side, call it the mortgage side, right? When you talk about all the subprime lending that Countrywide Financial was doing, or when you look at a lot of the alternative documentation that a lot of other um, home lenders were accepting, partially because they knew they didn't have to do much due diligence on this because they would then sell this to a originator who would then sell it inside a security, which would then be sold inside of a CDO. Do, right? do the so issuers of these have... leveraged loans who sell these loans to CLOs who then get bought by uh, Japanese buyers, are they doing a lot of due diligence today? And are there any problems with documentation? So I think there's a key distinction to be made here, right? Is there because any documentation? This all sounds very similar, right? I mean, it certainly raises alarms because Bio-similar. of that similarity. Right. The one key distinction, though, that I will point out is that pre-2008, you had a lot of fraud that was going on in the mortgage side. So recall that back uh, before 2008, there are all the stories about how you can go into a branch, let's say, for Countrywide Financial and then use a stated income loan, saying that I'm a teacher who makes, you know, and I, I will sign on the dot here, making $300,000 a year. And hey, here, what school is that? Where do you teach? <laughs> right? I mean, it's... Uh, what kind of, I mean, I don't know how people were allowing those kind of loans to be made back then, but, you know, several tens of billions of dollars of loans were made like that. Uh, and so let's take a step back now to what we see today. What is the similarity? Well, we're certainly seeing documentation getting a lot looser. And one of the terms that continues to get thrown around a lot is this big growth in covenant light. Now, that market is, you know, if we look at maybe five years ago, 
barely 20% of the leveraged loan market. Today, that is almost 80%. So that number has jumped significantly, um, right? This, this takes away the number of investor protections uh, that are normally in place uh, for a leveraged loan that just are not uh, on there anymore. And Andrew, you, you talked a little bit about how people fibbed about their income back in like 06 and 07. I think one thing we've noticed now is there's a lot of earnings addbacks where companies say that they are going to get synergies in the future. Can you talk about what proportion of loans or bonds have these and how big they are? Like, are they broadly similar to the idea of kind of liar's loans back in uh, 06 and 07? So there are those similarities. Now, it's not as bad as the liar loans, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But yes, the things that you mentioned, EBITDA addbacks, if we think about how they kind of came into play to begin with, um, if we look at back around 2013, the regulators had put together a call it the leverage lending guidance. Now, what was that? That was something that, you know, all the OZ, the Fed, the Treasury got together and said, we don't want repeats of what we saw back in 2008 with this crazy amount of leverage in these deals. Let's put a guidance in place. And this, it's just a guidance. It's not a rule, but a guidance where you would limit the number of, you know, the times the leverage you would take. So debt to EBITDA is, has to stay under six six times. And so for a while, you would see these deals come in and they say, oh, we're right below that. We're at five point whatever it is. Nice. And then you take a look closer and you realize, wait a minute, they're at that such because during the whole syndication process, they are marketing the deal as having a much higher, really could potentially, right? Because once you make an acquisition, you say, hey, we're going to save some money through synergies, through, you know, reducing employee compensation, through reducing overlap. And so that's some of, one of the ways that uh, some of the uh, private equity firms, when they're marketing their deals, would help to say, actually, we're below that six times uh, as a way to kind of, you know, manually get that number below that. And that practice has still continued today. We now see almost a third of uh, borrowers who are using some sort of EBITDA ad debt um, to adjust their earnings. Hey, Andrew, uh, this is Fabiano. So another problem is that it seems that there is about 85% of leveraged loans are issued by privately held companies that there is uh, limited information because they don't file uh, public statements with the SEC. Uh, do you think that's a problem? And have you guys done anything to try to change that, to try to gather data, to report these uh, credit metrics of these privately held issuers? So we do manage to get a lot of the uh, the data for the uh, issuers because as, even though they're not publicly issued, they will at the very least issue that earn those earnings to their invest. Who ultimately that will find its way to us. So we try to do uh, you know as good of a job as we can to try and bring all that data together uh, in house. That we get estimates of you know how was non-investment grade earnings growth. Uh, this quarter. Obviously, there is those issues about EBITDA addbacks that I've been uh, touching upon earlier, but barring that, I mean, we are still able to collect that data internally because at least they still have to report to somebody and, and that somebody being investors rather than the broader public. Yeah, this, this brings to mind the, uh, the SendPro online by Pitney Bowes, uh, through which you can send packages and mail without uh, leaving your office uh, just right from your desk uh, for as low as $4.99 a month. And for being a Grants listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started. As an added bonus, you'll also receive a free 10-pound scale shipped right to your door to help you accurately weigh your packages. So save time, money, no matter what you send, from packages to overnights and letters, just click Send and Save with this new offer from SendPro Online. So with the aforementioned $4.99 a month, you can uh, print shipping labels, stamps, your own printer, easily compare rates using the online software, 
that you will receive. Gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping. Plus, track all of your shipments and get email notifications when they have arrived. So go to pb.com slash grantspod to access this special offer and get a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash grantspod. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of SendPro online from Pitney Bowes. Thank you, Pitney Bowes. So, Andrew, uh, all these companies are optimistic when they buy another company or they take on debt, as you, you likely are when you buy another company or take on debt. But in terms of actually realizing these uh, expected synergies, have you guys done any work on what proportion of companies actually meet those targets or which ones fail? Yeah, so when we look at a lot of the um, these add-back projections that are being made, usually years later, we'll go down and we'll see, you know what, in fact, a lot of those synergies have not actually been realized. And in fact, leverage is much higher than it was originally marketed. So we do see a number of those instances. And that's why this has raised some alarm for people, because they're saying, can we trust EBITDA numbers that they are coming out with? So at this point, if you are a leverage loan investor, you cannot take a lot of numbers that are presented to you at the time of the deal on surface. You oftentimes have credit analysts who will re-underwrite the deal because they just do not trust these numbers anymore. Hey, Andrew, for simplicity's sake and to uh, for the sake of historical continuity, can we call EBITDA uh, fat leverage loans? Can we call them liar's loans? So I think there's going to be an important distinction here. So at the end of the day, if we look at what happened pre-crisis, you didn't really have any sort of auditor in the step of where someone could walk into a, uh, a mortgage broker and talk about how much they supposedly make. And that line behind them, making sure that person's stated income was correct. What well, there was no safeguard in place, at least with corporate borrowers, we do have auditors. Now, granted, but think about this EBITDA portion, it's not a gap number, right? Which is why there is so much flexibility as to how you can define it. But at the same time, right, you don't have, people are not doubling or tripling their earnings in a given quarter to try and falsify that. So I think that's one key distinction that we can make, right? You can make accounting adjustments on the EBITDA, but you're not, okay. you're not seeing that widespread level of fraud that we saw. I'm going uh, me- to meet, you, ha- I'm meet you halfway in this. I'm going to say they're not liars loans, they're dissembling loans. It sounds like it's okay. Hey, um, as we speak, the uh, Financial Times is reporting that there is an Another kind of harking back to the bad old days when you began your career, Andrew, this is 2008, 2009, or I guess before that, and that the dividend recaps are back in which a leveraged company borrows for no operating purpose, but rather to pay uh, a, a dividend or a little reward or a big reward, the case, for example, of Staples recently, uh, to the promoter. And can you describe for our listeners uh, how, how big this is and how big it might become? that's going to be one other cautious area that we have to look ahead for uh, this year because one of the things that happened uh, in the fourth quarter of last year was that with all the volatility in the market, you had a lot of the uh, investment bank which uh, come and issue these leveraged loans take a big pause, partially because they were so busy trying to take off a lot of the loans that were stuck in December off of their books. And so... Right now, you don't have, you have this lag effect. Usually when, when a, a bank pitches a, uh, a borrower, it takes about maybe six months or so for them to then bring, you know, some sort of deal to market or to bring some sort of financing. So you still have this lag where a lot of that activity that was paused in the, the fourth quarter hasn't, has, is clearly showing up by not enough deals coming to market. So in terms of these new LBOs, these new M&A deals that a lot of the CLO and loan buyers are trying to purchase 
they are just not there right now. To give you an idea of kind of what this looks like from last year, issuance is down almost 50%. Right, right. So it is a significant portion. That's that's a lot. You know, that's not out there. So now let's think about this from a CLO manager's point of view. You're in the business of building assets, right? At the end of the day, right. most CLO businesses are asset gatherers. And so you want to grow your businesses. And you, in order to do so, you need new products, in this case, leveraged loans. So what we're seeing is that a lot of borrowers are becoming a lot more opportunistic now because they not, they're not competing against new issues now. So they're either doing these deals called add-ons, which are just kind of additional financing they tap the market for, or they'll either have to do a refinancing. And the most interesting of all is the dividend recap, right? Because you are taking an existing structure and you are making, effectively, you're taking on more debt and uh, and risk, the trade-off of paying off your shareholders. Well, this gets back, does it not, Andrew? Um, we're talking to Andrew Park of S&P LCD. Andrew, does that, doesn't this get back to the level of interest rates and to the uh, the the great lunging and grasping for yield that is part and parcel of these very low nominal rates? Absolutely. I think this is the market where you are seeing the biggest manifestation of that. Um, one of the things that I think is worth noting is how is this all po- possible to begin with, right? Why do we have such strong demand on the CLO side? And if we take a, a step back here, let's think about how the CLO structure is created. When, when you issue anywhere from, at the very top, a AAA-rated note all the way down to an equity piece, which takes the first loss, and that's usually leveraged up to 10 times. And so if we think about you need to sell... Uh, you know, the piece of that COO across the stack. Well, who are you selling to at the very top of that, right? You are seeing voracious demand from Japanese bank investors right now. I think there was a story that I uh, published, uh, I think maybe about a month ago or so, that was talking about how one Japanese bank uh, who manages money for farmers and fishermen, uh, they literally have now bought up about $65 billion of the COOs. And why are we seeing that? Because in Japan, they have been celebrating, or I probably shouldn't use the word celebrating, but are, you know, 20 years of negative interest rate. And, and just to go back to you what know, you said, there's 750 there. billion of uh, CLOs out there, so that 65 percent is almost 10 percent of the entire stock outstanding, and it's in one bank with fishermen and farmers. That's right. And again, why? And, and even so, you know, and they are still going to be adding that exposure because why? I mean, if you're in Japan, what do JGBs yield right now? They are yielding negative. Ten years are, are negative. So you can't operate a bank investment portfolio with a negative yielding asset like that. And so they, okay, you know, I, got, I, I, okay I, got, I got a prediction. Here, here it is. Ready, Andrew? This is, this is um, okay, fine. Not all of our predictions at Grants come true, but this one's ironclad. Here it is. That when the inevitable happens and when the Japanese fishermen and uh, rice farmers uh, lose their money, uh, no central banker will say, uh, my bad, not one. Okay, that will close the predictive portion of this podcast, but that's, that's my call. What do you think? You know, well, I will say this, and this is the one, I think, assuring piece for the investors there, is that at least when you look historically, now CLOs compared to CDOs, and I think Evan was touching upon this, did at least form well during the financial crisis, right? Now, if you look at... CLOs, not a single one of them rated above AA has ever taken principal loss. So 
there is that comfort from pre-2008 for anyone invested in a COO. All the, the Japanese uh, bank investors who are buying this are on the AAA portion. That has never taken a default, historically speaking. But the, the problem about an asset that performs well or perceived to be safe is people kind of pile leverage and risk onto it in kind of a Minsky-like fashion. And I, I'd like to bring up something that um, Marty Fritzen told us, which is that if you look at the entire universe of non-investment grade um, you know, debt that includes high-yield bonds and loans, he said that on January 1st, 2007, one year before the the start of the Great Recession, the percent of um, loans and bonds that were rated uh, CAA to C, basically the lowest on Moody's scale, was 19.7% of the entire outstanding. And when the recession began on January 1st, 2008, it stood at 28.8%. Marty told us that, according to Moody's, as of January 1st of this year, it was 43.6%, and we haven't even started a recession yet. So we actually have the entire asset class has become much, much, much junkier than it was, um, you know, before the start of the Great Recession. And we have CLOs buying up a much greater portion of it, and companies who are kind of fibbing about their earnings. Is there a risk that losses going forward might be worse? And also, I think Fabiano can talk about this greater than I can, the structure of CLOs has changed some since the crisis. Before, they had a longer reinvestment period. So during an 09, when um, loans were being sold for you know pennies on the dollar, they could buy those and basically get a lot of good earnings. Now they have a much shorter reinvestment period, which means that if everything you know hits the fan, they're not going to be able to buy loans on the cheap, and they're going to be stuck with really junky credit they have on their books. Yeah, well, to your uh, first point, we are absolutely seeing more risk in the leverage loan and just high-yield market in general, both in terms of higher uh, leverage levels. We talked about kind of the issues around, you know, what are the quality of the earnings? And then just as we talk about, okay, right now we're not seeing that many companies go into default right now. I think that's the one area that we're still trying to figure out. When that number actually picks up, what could we expect? So let's go take a step back first. Why are we not seeing more defaults? That's partially because we don't have covenant, right? So when, when you don't have a covenant, you don't have these different areas that, you know, that, that the borrower can trip. So the argument has been made that, okay, well, they can operate for longer before an issuer or, or I'm sorry, a borrower can, or I'm sorry, an investor can, folk, you know, put them into default. So that's part of it. So companies that are not doing so well, they have a longer runway. But a couple of years down the line, if and when some of them default, what can we expect back from them, right? That's the big question right now. And I will say, the market has come to understand that you're not going to see the level of, call it, recoveries that you saw pre-2008. So that is one thing that people do acknowledge that, okay, yes, corporate debt performed well 2008, but we're not going to see that same level of performance this year. That being said, is it going to be as disastrous and you know, systematically important as what we saw in 2008 with the mortgage crisis? Probably not either, right? So I think that's one uh, key distinction to make. Uh, with that. Andrew, um, in 2008, 2009, one of the reasons the CLOs performed well seems to be that they breached uh, covenants and, and therefore they had to go back to the negotiation table to reset the credit spreads and, and therefore the loan prices went up and, and the CLOs recovered. But now they don't have covenants, so uh, would that be a problem for for the next in the next recession? It'll definitely be more problematic. Uh, a lot of loan investors have been complaining that one, because they don't have these maintenance covenants on them anymore, it's a lot harder to bring a lot of these issuers back to the negotiating table after the initial deal is done. Because in instances when you do have an issuer trip one of these covenants, you can then right bring them to the table and say, okay, well, you know, you need to pay us an extra 25 to 50 basis points for this um, in, in, you know, in exchange for us making concessions on 
other terms of your borrowing, right? You just don't have that anymore. So I think it's expected now that, again, when some of these companies get into trouble down the line, that the amount investor gets back will be much lower. So there are some numbers that we have around that. If, historically speaking, the average first lien uh, leverage loan was expected to, let's say, get after default about, let's say, on average 70%, that number is expected to be a little bit lower. I mean, some people have that number around the low 60s this time around, um, you know, with some a couple, uh, you know, levels below that. So there's no doubt that that kind of that level of uh, lower recovery is being anticipated by the market. But again, we're not talking about these disastrously lower uh, recoveries versus what you saw, again, on the mortgage side. Hey, Andrew, thank you for being with us. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard Andrew Park, who is an authority on, uh, I guess, all things leveraged at S&P Global Market Intelligence, and uh, as well an active uh, Twitter presence, or not so active as to actually arouse suspicion on the part of his employer. But Andrew is well worth following on Twitter. And as you can have just heard, he's a fabulous podcast guest. So Andrew, thank you for being with us. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Until the next time from Current Yield. <laughs>